So today is only a couple days until Christmas, and so we're in the heart of our series, Christmas at Covenant. And it's a pretty exciting time of year. Anticipation is high. The last couple of weeks, uh, Tim Butler, Nick Gillespie have preached, uh, they've given me a little bit of a break. I was out for a bit, and so I was really grateful that they did an excellent job of taking a different angle at Christmas, of giving us a, a different way to view the season. I was out. I was uh, spending time in Israel. It was, yes, it was like worthy of fanfare and songs, the whole thing. I was in Israel. I, I got contacted about six, seven weeks ago. A, an old friend sent me a text message, and it said, uh, have you ever thought about going to Israel? And I thought he was, he was considering going and wanted to get my opinion on who he should go with or what he should see. And I said, I've, I've never been. Yes, I think about it, but I'm waiting for someone to pay. And I laughed to myself like, oh, that's kind of funny. And his response back was, I'm paying. We're leaving in five weeks. And I went, oh, well, that worked out well. Okay. And so just kind of blindly, uh, all I had was a packing list and, and instructions on when to arrive in Newark for our flight. And so I kind of just blindly went through the motions of getting ready for this thing. It's a busy season at church, so I didn't really read any of the backstory or look too much into it. And I got to uh, the Newark Marriott where they had us for an orientation and a big dinner. And it's this really sweet, you know, setup. And they bring in all these people. And the guy stands up at the front and he goes, so this is a trip from uh, this umbrella organization. We are the millennial influencer initiative of this larger umbrella organization, to which I shrunk down in my seat a little bit, and I double-checked I was in the right room, because I'm like, I neither consider myself a millennial nor an influencer, but I'm so glad you're paying for the trip. (laughs) And um, it was a really interesting time, 10 days, and we did all kinds of incredible things. This group, this bus filled with people that just I didn't really know how I fit. And it was, it was a funny thing, publishing executives and, and podcasters, and someone was TikTok famous, and I had to figure out what TikTok was. Um, a guy from American Ninja Warrior is on the bus, and it was just a thing. There was a parallel trip going on. We met up with this group a couple times. Uh, the same group was doing a millennial influencer trip, and their trip was all Major League Baseball players. And the previous trip before our trip was all entertainers and rappers, and they were like, well, Lecrae was here last week, but... And I was like, oh, Lecrae, huh? Um, They said, yeah, he stayed in nicer hotels than you, so don't worry. Um, It was just a a strange kind of remarkable journey. We saw all kinds of things. We had access to things that most people didn't, and I felt very uh, privileged. And and to be honest, I'm just beginning to process uh, the whole thing. So there was always some possibility that I would come home from this time in Israel, and I would just unload it all today. So I kind of kept today open, just in case. And, and the reality is I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to tell you all about Israel. Um, but I will share one thing. Uh, on a bus of 30 type A people, highly driven and ambitious and loud and fun, I actually found myself drawn to a couple of shepherds on the bus. That amongst all the highly successful, ambitious people, there were a few people that kind of stayed in the background that were a little quieter. They were the people whose books hadn't sold as well as others or whose ministry ideas had never been properly monetized. They were shepherds. And that led me to think about today and the value of shepherds. And, and what's true is in our modern Christmas narrative, shepherds are just a vehicle of discovery. We read the modern Christmas narrative and we go, oh, the shepherds, yeah, you know, they're watching their flocks by night and et cetera, et cetera, Jesus. And I think there's a whole lot more to it. And so what we're going to do today is look deeper into the shepherd narrative and we're going to see what else there is in there. And what we're going to find is they were not only unlikely messengers, but they provoked an uncommon response and they are actually for us uncanny proxies in this season if we will simply open our eyes to see. 
So what we're going to do is go to Luke chapter 2. We'll put it up on the screen so you can read along with us, and we'll begin reading in verse 8. The scripture says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I will bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was, there was the, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Verse 17, when we pull it out of the text here, it says the shepherds have basically been made known what the truth was. And verse 17 says, when they saw it, they, they, they then made known the saying that had been told to them. You see, the reality for the shepherds as we begin is they didn't go to share, they went to see. That they got a vision and they had this angel and there's the multitudes, and they're going, man, did I have bad breakfast or is this legit? And they talk to each other and they say, let's go check out and let's go see. And they made haste to go and see the thing that was described to them. And only upon seeing, only upon this fact-checking mission becoming finalized, did they go, oh, it's real. And at that moment, Scripture says, then they began to tell everybody about what they had heard. And so the first thing they went to do was just to go and check the legitimacy of what they had. And only once they had that did they begin to share. I think that's important for us as as we look at the story is to go, based in reality. That over and over in in Scripture, when you go, I don't know if this is real, the the resounding response is, it's all true. That people get visions and premonitions, that people get hunches and feelings, and when you go and investigate, when you dig in deeper, when you go and turn over the rocks, what you find is that it's all true. And the shepherds got this vision, and it could have been nothing, and they went and they saw, and it was confirmed to them, and they went, oh, this is true. And they began to tell everybody. Or anybody, I suppose, anybody who would listen. And as we know, not everyone's always willing to listen. Listening in a digital world is even more complicated than it was then. The irony is that every layer of technology we add to connect us actually leaves us more disconnected. You ever had the experience of talking to somebody? Maybe your back is turned, you're you're in the kitchen, or you're, you're in the car, and you start a conversation and only to look over and they're texting? And you realize they've not been listening to the first few sentences of the conversation that you attempted to start. And you have to stop yourself and go, okay, we're, they're texting. And when this first started happening, I don't know if you had the same feelings I did, but I began to think, gosh, is, I think my wife might be really rude. She just texts right through my, my sentences. Only to, to come to realize that in a new digital world, she's having a conversation with another human being. And I was the rude one for interrupting the conversation over and over and hoping she'd put it away. And so now when I look over and her thumbs are punching at a screen, I have to go, she's having a conversation and I will wait till it's over and then I'll speak my thing. And I see a few of you elbowing each other. (laughs) 
She learned the same about me when it came to television. That if there is a glowing screen in the room with sound coming out of it, I'm just done. I'm out. You can talk to me. You can punch me. There's a glowing screen with sounds coming from some other galaxy. I don't know what's happening, but I'm watching this thing. In my house, if you ever come to my house to watch a television show, you will see that we mute all advertisements. We turn off all the advertisements, all the commercials. We mute them. Why? For two reasons. One, stick it to the man. Don't tell me what I'm supposed to buy. I'll decide. All right? You keep your advertisements. Second, if we had the advertisements on, I would never have human connection during the entirety of whatever we're watching. Because I can't do it. You're talking to me, but there's moving images, and there's, there's things, they're changing fast. You're not changing. It's changing. And so I just have to watch the screen. And so what we do is we've learned that we either have to have the television off if we end up conversation, or if we want to have little conversations about what we're watching, you're going to want to mute that. So don't invite me to your Super Bowl party because I just won't talk to anybody because... What do you do during the Super Bowl? You actually turn up the commercials because you want to see them. And I just zone out. I'm like, look, if we've got this glowing box on, we're going to have to, we're going to, have to pay attention. The reality is I'm listening, but I'm not hearing anything anyone says. When my wife is texting, she might be hearing me, but she's definitely not listening. And that's true of all of us. There's a common fight in almost every marriage that it's plumbing or it's finances or it's in-laws or it's whatever. But, but at some point, the phrase is uttered, I've been telling you for weeks, you just wouldn't listen. Now, the Bible doesn't say why these shepherds were chosen. But what we know about them, and what I, I think part of the narrative driving here, is they were at the bottom of the social ladder. Shepherds, uh, commentators, historians will tell you they were next to tax collectors and the dung sweepers. If you want to know your place in the world and people put you next to the most reviled person in the society and the most forgotten person who does the worst job in society, if you're sandwiched between those two, you think you know your place. The shepherds were between tax collectors and dung sweepers. And it's confusing for us because we have the totality of Scripture to look back at. And there are times in the Old Testament where shepherd is a noble profession. It's it's like this revered, honored thing. So many of the Psalms speak of shepherds and they're like, they're sweet. Shepherds are a cool thing. That's a great thing. Good shepherd. And yet after time in exile, after their season in Egypt, the people of Israel began to shift. Because when shepherds went to Egypt, Egypt was an agricultural land, and so shepherds were now the enemy. Because if you're growing crops, what you don't want is sheep and goats to be coming through and eating them. And so over time, they began to deride these shepherds. And even today, rabbis back then had said, so shepherds had to remain outside the city. When they returned to Israel, shepherds had to stay outside the city. They put them in the desert wilderness to go and forage on the plains, and it's still true today. Shepherds were marginalized. Were marginalized and so unremarkably common, they were not even considered really people, such that their testimony was not admissible in court. These are shepherds. If you're reading the Good Samaritan story, and and if you'd added in a bit about, hey, there's a shepherd there who witnessed the crime. Can we arrest the guy who who beat up the guy left in the ditch? Can we arrest him? And the shepherd was the only witness. They'd go, no, though there were were no witnesses. Well, the shepherd saw it, and they'd go, we know there's no witnesses. Keep moving. It's such a strange thing, then, if you know that about shepherds, to go, why would God choose to proclaim the coming Messiah through the lowest of the low, through this dung sweeper, tax collector, lowest rung on the ladder. 
And it would seem that if you were going to bring a king to rule an upside-down kingdom where the greatest serve the least and the last become first, that it might make sense to start with an upside-down delivery system. Not a king making a proclamation, but a commoner whispering in the shadows. Why? Because God opposes the proud. God opposes the smug and the prejudiced because God longs to reach the unreachable because God remembers the lowly and forgotten because God exalts the humble. And so in this moment, as the shepherds are chosen to be the ones to whom the vision is revealed, God uses the humble to exalt Jesus. God uses the lowly to proclaim the most high that maybe the shepherds were the ones who were just willing to listen. Not only did they undo the social construct, maybe they're the only ones that have so little going on and so little status and so little self-importance that they're actually willing to listen. Because the reality is in order to truly hear someone else, you have to set aside your own thoughts and opinions and self-importance for a hot minute. You have to value another's voice above your own. Everybody's been in that situation where you're having a conversation with somebody and you see that look in their eyes and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are not listening to you but thinking of the thing they're going to say next. And very few things feel as offensive as that. Because in order to hear someone, you have to set aside your own thoughts and opinions. You have to set aside the voice in your head to truly hear the voice of another. Listening, then, is a skill of the humble. Listening is a skill of the humble So here's what's beautiful. The shepherds got a vision. The shepherds got a spectacle. The shepherds got glory. Everyone else just got a shepherd. Think about it. We read the whole story, but if you're there gathered around the manger, if you're there in the city and Jesus has been born, man, the shepherds got all the good stuff, the vision, the spectacle, the glory, and then then you just get the lowly shepherd. Too many of us are waiting for angels to come visit or booming voices from the heavens, lightning bolts to move us from where we are to where we need to be, to change the habits, to take on the new initiative, to make the big shift in life. Too many of us are waiting for those things because we live in an expert-based culture, TED Talks and celebrities, that someone from on high needs to make sure they give us the advice. Otherwise, I don't know if I want to follow that. And so we ignore the still small voice in the world. We ignore the whispers of the lowly. We ignore those things waiting. Well, if the Lord would just show me, I would do it. Look at the text. God delivered his message with angels. Just how everyone wants to hear from God. So the shepherds got the angel. But everyone else just got shepherds. So the humble king arrives, and if you don't have the humility to listen to the shepherds, you've already rejected the king. Think about this. If you are in this world, and if you don't have the humility to listen to the lowest of the low, if you don't have the ability to listen to the shepherds, then before you've ever begun, you've already rejected the king because you've killed the messenger before the message has ever been delivered. It seems that faith requires humility. And then humility grows faith. To have faith requires humility, but humility then grows our faith. But we want the booming voice from heaven. We want the clear, articulated word. In the Old Testament, we're like, there's a burning bush. Why can't that be it? There was an earthquake. God came as a wind. God came as a fire. God eventually came as a still, small voice. In the New Testament, Jesus himself shows up. And you go, see, that's more like it. 
That's the kind of clarity I need. And Jesus shows up and he spends his time with who? Fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, brawlers. So they got Jesus. You read your New Testament and you know who wrote that? Inspired by God, but it's the testimony of fishermen and tax collectors and zealots and brawlers. That we don't always get the booming voice from heaven. Sometimes we get the message from the one who got the booming voice from heaven. But you and I are so conditioned in our world, our expert conditioned world, we need to hear it from the source, otherwise we don't believe it. And how many things do we miss because we ignore the lowly who have something to teach us? In life, sometimes you do get spectacles and miracles, but more often you will get a shepherd. So the question becomes, who is the shepherd speaking into your life and are you listening? People come into my office and they say, I just don't hear from God. And in a quote that's been used by every religion and attributed to every wrong person, it still stands true. When the student is ready, the master appears. I just don't hear from God. I don't know that you're listening. Because if you're waiting for a lightning bolt, it might be a while. So the shepherds are unlikely messengers, and now it becomes an uncommon response to their message. The scripture says, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. So everybody's going, huh. This is interesting. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So most had tickled ears and imagination, and they said, well, I wonder what that could be. But Mary, it says, it says very clearly, but Mary, a hard shift in the language. Something transitional is happening. She's doing something different. It says she treasures. She treasures the words. This would be defined, I would say, better than treasures as values and memorizes. The original word means she not only values but memorizes the words. She's been given the words and she's so enraptured by them that she holds them and memorizes them. And then it says she ponders them in her heart. And that word ponder is a very clear translation of converse. Which is to say if you did my translation, and I wouldn't do this with many passages, but I'm absolutely clear reading a hundred different commentators, they all say the same thing. And I said, somebody update the way we read this because what it should say is she heard these words and she valued and memorized and then began a conversation in her heart and soul about them. Which is a whole lot different than ponder in my heart. She begins to have a conversation with these words. She's tossing them back and forth within herself. She's flipping them over. She's examining them from every direction. She's digesting them over and over going, what is it that they mean? I would argue that she not only asked questions of what she heard, but she allowed what she heard to begin to ask her questions. And that's getting a little Eastern on you here, but we got a newsflash. This was written by Eastern-thinking people. Are you listening for the answers, or are you open to the questions that the answers contain? Read the conversations of Jesus. He gets asked a question. Often, how does he respond? Question. Oh, good question. Here's a question for you. Oh, good question. Let me tell you a story about something unrelated and end with a question. It's not expert to idiot, which is the way our Western world works. We live in an expert idiot climate. This is Western education, and I challenge you to tell me this is not true. You go to kindergarten, and what is the only requirement? Kindergarten teachers, we love you. You're incredible. The kindergarten teacher who would not be incredible is the one who was not as smart as the idiot five-year-old. Five-year-olds are not idiots. You're great. But experts and idiots. Got to be careful with this one. You go to fifth grade art. What do you need the art teacher to know? She needs to know a whole lot more 
than the fifth grader. You go to eighth grade science, as long as the eighth grade science teacher knows more science than the, it's experts and idiots, and it goes into college, freshman biology, master's program, my PhD. Can somebody without a high school diploma judge on somebody's PhD? Can they? No. Then I need an expert who's above me to rule on something below me, and it's a top-down hierarchical experts and idiots everywhere we go. It looks a little bit, I hate to say this, like this. Except we reject the expert and idiot continuum. I would actually say if you're here because you think I have some expertise that you don't have, and so you can just sit back and have the expertise, I would say you might be in the wrong church. Because we don't actually believe that that's how this works, that that the Bible says that each of us are ministers, that each of us are responsible for taking the word, for feeding our souls, for living it out, that there's no professional, unprofessional, expert, and idiot dynamic here. That some have gifts of communication, that can be fine. But we live in a culture, a Western culture, that says there must be experts and then those who are not as expert. And that's how the whole thing works. In 2012, I sat down with my wife in our living room and I said, hey, I think I'm going to go to seminary. I hadn't been to seminary, been a minister for a number of years, was doing just fine. And she goes, well, that's interesting. Why would you want to do that? I said, well, you know, like what if, I don't know, what if something happened to the church? I had to get another job. Like what if the church got fired? I said it. It did. I said, what if there was a financing thing, like a scandal, or there's moral failure, or just who knows? Things close all the time. What if the church goes away, and then these people who know me and love me for who we really are, what if nobody knows, and I got to get a different job, and those people don't know what I know? I would need to have some paper on the wall that says I know something, like a seminary degree. So 2016, I send one resume out to a frozen swampland, and the people receive it, The people received the resume, and one of their conditions, one of the job qualifications that they had was seminary degree required. Not because it's right or wrong to require a seminary degree, but because smart people put together a job description that says in an an education-based university town, it might be good to have somebody with credibility to talk to the people who have PhDs and such. Because experts and idiots. And so thank the Lord that he prompted me in 2012 so when I applied in 2016, you all would accept me and finish that. And so I have that master's degree. But I would tell you, there are a lot of people in this room, a lot of people in this church that know more than I do, that understand better than I do, that are far beyond me on the spiritual journey. And that's how God's designed it. It is not an expert and idiot world in the church that we are all in it on the faith journey together and you have things to teach and I have things to receive and it all works like that. That's the Eastern way that it works. It's challenge and response. That you challenge me and then I challenge you and so on Sunday you come and get a challenge and then through the week we respond and then I hear that response and that's a challenge back to me and we go back and forth and we both grow in the journey and that's what the New Testament looks like. And so when you see the Pharisees, they're often painted as the villains because we look at them with a Western lens that says, look at them challenging Jesus. And it turns out the Pharisees were the best students because they were the ones who were most into his teaching and they were challenging and the challenge and response opened up the truth for everybody. Challenge and response, challenge and response. I didn't understand this when I got kicked out of my Catholic confirmation class. They were teaching us about Mary, and I said, I have some questions about this. And the guy teaching the class, the expert, said, no, you sit back in your idiot seat. I just have some things to tell you. And I said, but I have some questions. And he began to teach more, and I said, okay, I have more questions. 
And about the eighth time, I said, I have some more questions. And I asked my questions, and everybody else in the class began to doubt. He whispers into his collar, swarm, swarm, and the nuns came in, and they took me. And, <laughs> and I, was, I was thrown out. They said, you, don't ever come back. And I didn't understand. I said, this is challenge and response. And they said, no, no, this is expert and idiot, and you'll either take it or you'll leave. And so I left. When you read an ancient text, when you open your Bible, when you read something especially written from an Eastern point of view, are you reading for the answer to the test like a Westerner? Are you reading for the questions it might be asking your soul like an Easterner? Level one of reading Scripture is reading Scripture. Level two is unlocked when you start letting the Scripture read you. And there's a difference. Level one is I need to find the answer to the test. Level two is I wonder what it's going to ask me today. So in this way, it's an uncommon response that we see from Mary. It's the response that we are to mimic, which is to treasure and memorize and turn over and flip over and digest and think again. And what could this be asking me? It's an uncommon response. And in this way, shepherds become an uncanny proxy for you and I in this season. Because listen, they were not geniuses. They were outcasts and ruffians. And they got the angel's message which tells us that the good news is not reserved for the polished or the pious, but is on offer to any with enough humility to receive it, to lean in and receive the message. And so we are the shepherds. Not because we join them in status or wealth or education, not because we're the lowest people on the social ladder, but because we, with our sin, have become outsiders in the city. We've been banished from the city and said, hey, go out on the desert for a bit because your unrighteousness prohibits you from being in the city in the city of God. The shepherd's sin was being shepherds in a farming world, no fault of their own, but ours is our sin. With our hands and heart, we all fall short. And so we live outside the walls of holiness, outside the walls of his kingdom, until we're invited back in. But we are the proud and the smug and the lowly and the unreachable, that we are the shepherds of the culture. And we are the ones that Jesus came for. This is how we are the shepherds. We, like the shepherds, are the unworthy carriers of the message being delivered. That the shepherds, being outside the city, receive the message and go to deliver it. You and I, being outside of holiness because of our sin, we receive Jesus and now have the ability to go and share. We are the unworthy carriers of a holy and righteous message. I don't know about you, but the people who knew me before Jesus had a hold of my life would argue that I have any right to tell anyone how to live. They would say, drunkard, promiscuous, fool. And they would be right. And God sets it up just so because as an unworthy receiver and an unworthy messenger, I can say exactly, exactly, I'm not telling you to live because I figured it out. I'm telling you that life is found in Jesus. I'm not telling you to live because I climbed the right righteousness ladder. I'm telling you that Jesus came down the ladder to grab me and he can do it for you too. And there's no amount of earning or effort that can get you there. And that's the way the upside down thing works. That's why shepherds are us. Because nobody in this room can stand up and say, I earned my way into salvation. I, I fought my way into faith. None of that is true. That we were rescued and scooped up out of the mire that we outside the city were welcomed in. The angel, the message, the vision came to us that says you can find salvation through no effort of your own. God used Jesus to deliver the message that he loves you and will give up everything to bring you into holiness, into heaven, into his kingdom here and now. 
So we can look at anyone and say, yes, my past is ugly and sometimes my present is just as bad. But my Savior is beautiful and that's what matters. It's not because of your education or the paper you have on the wall. It's not because of your status or your wealth. It's not because of your lack of any of those things, but purely because of the love of Jesus that you and I call ourselves secure. And so then Jesus turns around and uses us, uses you to deliver the very same message. We become the shepherds in the story. Again, not only are we the unwilling receivers and the unworthy receivers of a message that is not fit for someone of our low standing, but then we're asked to go and see Go and test. Go and tell. We become the shepherds that in a world busy with Christmas preparations, with people waiting by the front door for that last minute delivery, or busying themselves with the next thing to gain status in the world, that you and I, if we have the humility to show up, that we can be the ones like the shepherds to tell the world. That we can be the ones to come into a busy society with a whole lot going on, and we can be the ones to walk in and go, hey, the Savior the truth, the eternity, this Christmas. I heard about it and I went and I tested it and I tested it and it was real. I wanted to go see for myself. I'm not telling you because I have an experience. I'm telling you because I went to see for myself that I was in all the wrong places doing all the wrong things and he gave me life anyway. And as I tested, it's right. And as I tested, it's real. And you and I can walk into a culture obsessed with chasing anything that gives it meaning and we can say the meaning is here. It's all true. Like the still small voice, it's all true. Like the shepherds in the field, it's all true. That God is with us and for us and in us. And it is a message that we all need to hear every day. But in this season, especially because the next few days are going to be a blur. And you will wake up and go, gosh, I guess Christmas happened again. We make our Christmas Eve service short on purpose. It's 45 minutes or so because we know that as much as people want to go to church on Christmas Eve, the only thing they want more is to get out of church and get back to the things they have to get done. And so we oblige because we know. And the thing I want you to hear more than anything else in this season is it's all true. We are the shepherds who received the message And you and I have gone and tested and tasted. And as we uncover stone after stone, as we look around through truth after truth, what we come back with is it's all true. You want archaeological evidence? It exists. You want physical evidence? It's existing. You want spiritual evidence? It's existing. It's all true. And so like shepherds today, you can receive the good news again. Your heart's been hardened. The season is busy and what you need to leave on your heart with is the fact that it's all true. And then like shepherds, again, you can take it. And you can take what you've seen and you can take what you've heard and you can share it that others might believe and hear with you. It's all true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for the truth of your word. I'm grateful for the the way that your word reads us, the way that your word turns us over, forces us into the upside-down kingdom that you've created. Lord, my prayer is that we as a community, we would be open to the questions that your word is asking us, that we would be open to the, the depth of pondering that you've invited us into. 
God, that as we shake out and sift all that culture would tell us, as we shake out and sift all that your word says, Lord, we not only come to the realization that it's all true, but more than that, we would begin to be receptive to what, to what you're asking us to do through it. The questions you're asking of our hearts and then the questions that you're asking of our hands. Father, my, my deepest desire is that we would be a community that is so steeped in truth, so convinced of your goodness that it would spill out everywhere we go. So Lord, today I pray that you would be close, that we would feel your presence, that we would sense your truth. And with that, that we might be one step closer to like the shepherds going and sharing it with someone else in word or in deed. Father, in some way that might communicate to others what you've already communicated to us, Father, thank you so much. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for sacrifice. And thank you for Christmas. Father, we love you and we pray in your son's holy name. Amen.